This is The New Way We Work from Fast Company Magazine, where we take listeners on a journey through the changing landscape of our work lives and explain what we need to build the future we want. I'm Fast Company Deputy Editor Kate Davis. On a recent episode, we talked about the gender pay gap and all the complexities that factor into why women consistently make less than men. Often when the subject of the gender pay gap comes up, so does the notion that it's due in part because women are much more likely than men to take time off after the birth of a child. However, the missing part of that equation is the way that mothers, both those who take time off and those who don't, are often paid differently than men after they become parents. It's a common phenomenon called the motherhood tax and the fatherhood bonus. Women experience a penalty when they are expecting or when they become mothers. Presumably, this is because the assumption of their employers that the bulk of the child care will fall on them and that they will therefore be less committed to their work. The flip side of this is the fatherhood bonus, that men, on average, enjoy a sizable income boost for being parents. The reasons why being just as based on gender stereotypes, that men who are fathers are more responsible and will be more dedicated to their jobs, and also that they need more money because they have a family to support. This discrepancy in pay for mothers and fathers is consistent across all groups, including different ethnicities, education levels, occupations, and ages. Joining me to talk about the motherhood tax is Claudia Reuter. Claudia is the author of the book, Yes, You Can Do This, How Women Start Up, Scale Up, and Build the Life They Want, and the host of the podcast, The 43%, and the CEO of a new company focused on the future of work. Claudia, thanks so much for being here. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to talk with you. So when we talk about the motherhood tax, there are two big ways that women will see this hit to their pay show up. Mm. The first is for women who take time off, whether it's a year or several years after they have children. And when they try to re-enter the workforce, it's often not at the same level as when they left. How have you seen that play out? So unfortunately, yeah, I've seen this play out. Um, There's a quote out there that references a study that I think a lot of people have seen that says, you know, when men apply for a job, they often meet only 60% of the qualifications, but when women apply, they feel like they need to hit 100% of them. And it, you know, it's a study coming from HP. It's been quoted in a number of places. And so it's easy to look at that and think, okay, there must be a confidence issue or what's Mm -hmm. really going on there. And when you dig in, there's a study from SUNY from a few years ago that suggests that some of this actually stems from um, the way in which women are conditioned to be compliant from a very early age. So it's the reward systems that we have set up for wanting to make sure that you're getting the answer right. So when you see a job description that says you need XYZ, you're less inclined to apply unless you have XYZ. Whereas if you've been conditioned, according to the study, like many men have been, to be more comfortable ignoring a role than you aren't as daunted by applying. So when we couple this idea of conditioning around compliance with the message that women get that if you are a full-time caregiver, that you really haven't done as much that's valuable or valued, um, I think we kind of get this double hit where you're suddenly in a position where you're not feeling 100% qualified and you feel like you need to get the answer right on how to explain away your gap years. And then meanwhile, on the employer side, 
you're looking at candidates who meet the requirements, but you do want people who can self-advocate, who can exude confidence. So I've definitely been in interviews where I've seen and heard women apologize for the time they've stepped away. And then I've also heard, you know, men who say things like, oh, I, I just kind of had a great windfall or a great exit. And I've been off on an island, you know, for the last year. And something about that response, you know, exudes so much confidence, like, hey, this person, you know, took time out, but it's because they were successful. Therefore, they should come back in at the same level or higher. And here we have women who often feel like they need to apologize for this gap. And so I think there's a real reframe that needs to happen on what we what we talk about when we say we value caregiving, um, and when we think about the idea that, you know, we've got college kids out there who take a gap year and it's called experiential learning, a, a woman takes time to care for her kids and it's something that they have to apologize for and also retrain for to feel like they're qualified to come in at the same level they left. So, yeah, I think we have a lot of challenges and opportunities there. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and you know, we've we've covered this before and we did a, a first person story a few years ago in our uh, package about the pay gap where a woman who had 15 years experience at Goldman Sachs and then took some time off. And then when she came back, it was like that 15 years of experience didn't even exist. And she mm -hmm. had to start right back at entry level again. And, and yeah, for an employer to not recognize that that experience is still valuable experience and you're, you know, you're kind of set back to, to square one, like obviously that's going to take a big hit to your pay. The other way that we see the motherhood tax play out is that once a woman becomes a mother, or sometimes even when she's pregnant and expecting, their career path and opportunities get mommy tracked, get, mm -hmm. you know, like even if they're staying in their job and they don't take time off, suddenly their career takes a turn and their opportunities dry up. Can you tell me how you've seen that play out? Yeah. So when we think about and talk about the motherhood penalty, as you mentioned, you know, it's a term that's been coined by sociologists um, and it's a real thing and it doesn't just impact mothers. I think that's the important piece for people to remember. Um, it's really impacts all women. Um, and the idea that when I take a step back and think about the idea that until 1978, it was still totally legal to discriminate against someone for risk of pregnancy or being pregnant until 1974 you needed a male co-signer to get credit, you know, in order to, you know, run a business or do anything. So I think it's important to recognize that while the laws have changed, that doesn't mean that behavior or belief systems have changed. And when we think about what a law is, right, it's something that society agrees on as a construct. It's not necessarily an innate understanding. So like we have to teach kids what it means to um, understand that you can't steal, right? You, you take the time to teach a kid, hey, you can't, you know, take that person's toy or take that candy um, because it's a law and we all agree that that's fair. So I think it's important to think about how many people were taught that women couldn't be trusted with money or how many people were taught that simply being a mother or potentially becoming pregnant meant that you were going to be an unreliable worker. And I think we have a lot to do to undo those con those beliefs that are happening under the hood, because it wouldn't it be great if um, you know people looked at the time, even if people are taking a step out of the quote workforce to care for young children, to also say, well, let's talk about the value that's actually happening there and how this person is is really reliable that they're caring for people. So um, yeah, when people get mommy tracked, I think what happens is they're they're suddenly stepping into part-time work because they're trying to fit into a, you know, a construct that was not designed with caregiving in mind. 
like the school day and the work day don't align, you know, um, the work day ends. Sometimes you have meetings that are planned um, during daycare pickup time. So I think there's a lot to do to think about, you know, societal constructs that are belief systems, as well as, you know, real constructs that happen, you know, in logistics and day to day. Yeah. I mean, and there's, there's so much in there, like, as you say that just because the law changed, the beliefs don't change. And, you know, as you were saying that I remembered um, one of my first jobs, which was, this was uh, 2007 that I overheard somebody say, well, that's why you don't want to hire women because they get pregnant. Mm. Like this is 2007 that somebody is saying, oh, you know, if you hire women, you're going to end up, you know, have to, they're going to drop out or they're going to have to take, you know, three months off or something, which is just what it's so short sighted. But then, you know, you also think like, well, you never know what's going to happen with anybody. Like you could have an injury and have to take three months off. You know, if if it's, you know, the, the pregnancy discrimination, I think, you know, is where some of this starts. But then also, yeah, the assumptions on, well, you're going to be the primary caregiver. So you're Mm -hmm. going to be the person that's going to be doing the taking the time off for doctor's appointments and school pickups. Obviously, it's going to be you because we're falling back on these like outmoded stereotypes, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So then the flip side of all of this is that often, you know, studies have have shown that when men become fathers, they are more likely to get raises and promotions. They um, are benefits of something called the fatherhood bonus. Um, Again, kind of based on these outmoded uh, stereotypes that men are the providers, that they are going to be more responsible. Can you talk about how, how you've seen this play out? I, you know, unfortunately, even the, your point you just made about 2007, it, unfortunately, it doesn't shock me. Um, and I have seen this play out. I think something to keep in mind um, that I think is interesting is that whenever men do something, it's valued more. So like, you know, women were the first computer programmers. It became a lucrative profession when men got into it. Women were the first ones to deliver babies. It became lucrative when men became OBGYNs. Amy Westervelt calls that out in a book that she wrote a few years ago. Um, so I think one of the things that's been really interesting that's happening that happened during COVID is, you know, for years, I mean, I know I felt this way multiple times, even if you are managing to do it all and you've got your kids with you and you're working and you're doing different things, there was still this sense that you needed to compartmentalize that no one could know that you, you were figuring it out with kids. So like I, I talked on my podcast about how I negotiated a term sheet from a bedroom closet because I didn't want people to hear, you know, the risk hearing what was happening. And during COVID, you know, it was like men suddenly had a baby on their lap and you're like, wow, look at him. He's, <laughs> he's doing it all. He's, he's super dead because he's holding his child. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And so I think, you know, we, once we, in many ways, men, actually proved that you can keep working and you can have this life with kids and still be responsible and credible. And I hope that that bleeds into the future for women. Like we, we, suddenly people remember that and say, oh yeah, maybe I can just work at home and make this all work. And, you know, I can figure out a more inclusive way to run my business and still, um, you know, think about how all these things can happen outside of like a factory mindset of working nine to five. Yeah. And I mean, I guess the other hope there too, you know, that I've heard some people talk about is a lot of men who were hands off with their, with the child rearing and with all of those responsibilities with having to work from home have seen how much more that burden falls on women and have Mm -hmm. seen how much they actually have to 
simultaneously do. Um, but yeah, I think it, it still does remain at least so far that, that men are rewarded for, for being fathers and, and women are punished for being mothers. Um, yes. I, I imagine though, a lot of people listening to this who are in management roles may be thinking, you know, well, I'm not punishing mothers or rewarding fathers. Like you know, nobody like consciously, I mean, maybe that, that, that guy that said, don't hire women because they get <laughs> pregnant, but like most people, good intentioned people, you know, are, are yeah. thinking that they're not doing this consciously. How can leaders and companies kind of root out these discrepancies in their existing workforce and how can they make changes to their hiring and their pay and their promotions going forward? Yeah. So I think I totally agree with you. I don't think most people consciously do any of these things, but um, I mean, number one is education, right? I think when you know better, you do better. And so helping people understand that the motherhood penalty is real, that it impacts all women, not just moms who are moms at this exact moment. Um, you know, I think when we think about 85% of women become mothers at some point, yet we treat, treat each one like it's an anomaly. Um, I think that, you know, education is step one. Um, but step two is, you know, it's mindset on more subtle things. Like, uh, when we talk about inclusion, I think sometimes people confuse inclusion with representation, right? So this idea like, well, I've done a great job. I've assembled this team and there's, you know, it's got a diverse group of people and, and whatnot. But when we talk about inclusion, you know, for someone who's a caregiver, you know, subtle things like thinking about, okay, do I really need to have that meeting at five o'clock or at 445? If I know that I've got someone on my, in my team on my meeting who has to pick up their kid from daycare, the, the reality is you can't, it's not like choosing to go to the salon or the golf course. Like you have to pick up your kid from daycare. Right. And so, and you can't even run. 15 minutes late. Like that's the thing too. I think, you know, the, they're like, oh, well, we'll just go a little bit later and it doesn't matter. Like all of those parents doing pickup are watching every single second tech tick by of like, I have to get there right now. Yes. Cause at some point social services will come, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it's like, so, but so what happens is I think that there's, there's groups out there have talked about the idea that people will think they're being kind and they'll say, oh, don't worry. It's okay. If you can't come to that meeting, we'll send you the notes. So one, you kind of say, okay, well, how important is this as is this meeting? Does everyone really need to be here? What are we doing? But two, if it really, it's not actually inclusive to say that. Like an inclusive thing to do would be to say, let's make sure that we've got the meeting at noon when we know everyone who's who needs to be in the meeting can be there. And we'll leave, you know, 445 for the time that where you have to do your individual work and you can get that done whenever you need to get it done. So it's simple things where sometimes I think people think they're being kind. They're actually putting someone in a stressful position where suddenly you're feeling like, okay, it's either I pick up my child or I'm once again perceived as not being responsible in my job. And so it's, it's little things like that, that can have a big um, impact. And, and I think these are things that take time and take habit and muscle to build out. So We'll yeah. Get there. Yeah. That's, that's a really important point of, of, you know, people who think, oh, take the time you need, you know, we are totally flexible, but what are you really judging by, you know, and a lot mm -hmm. of, a lot of places are, well, you weren't in that meeting and all of the, the, dis uh, the ideas got discussed or, you know, we just never really see her around. We don't think of her. She's not top of mind for promotions because she's not like putting in the FaceTime. Like, mm -hmm. are you, are you, judging, you know, results or are you judging time in meetings, time at, you know, 
FaceTime, that sort of thing. And, exactly. and then, yeah, I mean, obviously I think part of that too is, you know, pay audits and, and like an actual look at your criteria of, of who you're promoting and why, and who's getting paid what and why. Mm-hmm. Um, so in response to the pandemic's toll on women's participation in the workforce, which, you know, we've, we've covered a lot on the show. We've talked about it a lot of, of how many women have dropped out of the workforce because of caregiving duties, how, uh, the gender pay gap has widened during the pandemic. The, in response to that, um, the Marshall Plan for Moms has been gaining a lot of uh, support from a lot of high-profile people. What do you think about proposals like that, like direct payments to moms who have seen their paid labor in the workforce replaced by a lot more unseen, unpaid labor at home? So I'm really glad there's a conversation happening about this. I'm really glad that people are talking about the idea that there's been this unpaid labor. And so I think it's a step in the right direction, but I feel like it's just the start of a much bigger conversation. Um, because when we go back to the, you know, the big V word in my mind is the value that we're mm-hmm. talking about when we talk about childcare and caregiving. And going back to uh, you know a topic I raised a little bit earlier on the idea that when men are in a certain profession, just historically, it pays more. We also know that early child care providers are some of our most you know they're lower paid um, mm-hmm. professionals. Um, so we talk a lot about valuing the importance of early childhood education and early child care. Yet we don't pay for it as a society, yet the amounts that we have to pay are often a burden on families who are trying to make ends meet. And so when the Marshall Plan for Moms um, came out, I think it is really interesting, but it's I think it's interesting to think about the dollar that they put on it. So it's $2,400 a month, which if you know that's 40 hours a week, that's $15 an hour. Um, if it's a 24-7 job, which it is, that's $5.71 an hour. So here we are in 2021 finally saying there's a dollar amount associated with it, but we're still saying that that dollar amount equates to a minimum wage or less. Mm. And I think this could actually be a really rich opportunity to talk about the impact that early childhood has on out, later t- outcomes for individuals. Like we know that a high quality early childhood experience leads to lower incarceration rates, leads to all sorts of wonderful positive outcomes for individuals and society. And when we think about what happens as a mom, right? You, If you're really focused and, and trying to be, be there doing your best, right? You are managing a lot. You're managing the schedule, you're managing doctor's appointments, you're looking at nutritional plans, educational plans, you're reading books on parenting. There's a million websites out there on how to be a better parent. And a lot of those skills that we see to me look an awful lot like a management position, not mm. a minimum minimum wage position. And so, you know, while you might be able to get a, a babysitter in the door for a few dollars an hour to watch your kids for a few minutes while you go to an errand or, or go to a movie or whatever the case may be, um, when you think about the long-term actual thought and care that goes into true high quality caregiving, um, I just think that number, it should be on par with what we think of when we pay a manager. And, you know, when we, and we may not be able to do that as a society, we may not be able to afford it or write that check, but I think we should have a conversation about the value and, and really elevate what that is, or we may need to see men doing it. And then suddenly it'll be, (laughs) (laughs) then then it'll be paid, you know, a billion dollars a year. Exactly. (laughs) I mean, that's, that's a really interesting way to frame it. I think, you know, 
a lot of people will hear this and say like, oh, so we're just going to give women money to stay at home. But, you know, when you frame it in the way that it's an investment in early childhood education, which, as you say, has been proven again and again and again to be the most crucial years of development, the most crucial mm -hmm. years of learning, which bizarrely are totally unfunded in the United States are just like, figure that out on your own. Like, we'll take them when they're five. Then it's society's, you know, then it's a, a public good. But those crucial years, like, it's totally up to you. And that sets the footing, as you say, for inequality. You know, if you have mm -hmm. the money to to give them a really great early childhood education, then they have a huge step up. Then those are the people who are going to have the opportunities to go to the best colleges, get the best jobs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the people without the money without that that leg up in those crucial years, it just perpetuates that cycle. So I think that's a really great framing, framing it in the like, this is an investment in your future workforce. This is an investment in, you know, potentially the the future doctors and innovators and scientists and leaders. You know, we're investing money in our future rather than, you know, which and as you say, too, it is a really important job. But I think a lot of people do hear it of like, oh, you're just giving people money to stay at home, you know? Right. And I, I think this goes back to, you know, that, that sense that people have that they need to explain away their gap year instead mm. of actually articulating the value that they provided during those years, just like a college kid explains why they traveled overseas and that was a great experience for them or why the guy who, you know, went to an island for a month, um, you know, talks about what a great, you know, experience that was. Somehow we've devalued the caregiving experience so much that people feel like they need to hide it and mm -hmm. they can't even talk about it. And I'm like, you're bringing an incredible value prop back to your employer. Like that, yeah. you know, you had to manage an awful lot and the amount of patience that you have to demonstrate while you're doing those things is pretty pretty high. I know. I will tell you. And, you know, we've written a, about this a little bit, like the the management skills you gain in trying to reason with and understand and <laughs> get a toddler to do something are transferable management skills to working <laughs> with adults, you know, like the level of patience and the the like logic and all of that. Yeah, that's these are very transferable skills. Yeah. Well, no is the most powerful, powerful word that people can say. And that's why two-year-olds say it, right? Because it's powerful. And when you think about any committee that you've ever gone to, there's always a no, right? There's always some person who feels like they're not in a power, a position of power. And so they'll throw out no as a way to drive the conversation. And so being effective in, in you know, a, a cross-functional leadership role, like you have to figure out how to influence and make someone feel safe, make someone understand change is going to be okay. Um, that's part of the reason I'm really excited about some of, you know, in addition to some of the things I've put in um, my book and in the podcast, the new company I'm working on right now is really focused on helping people come, like basically leveraging technology to bring people together to work, to solve problems and define new goals and, and work to collaborate versus doubling down on different sides and having mm. more discourse. Mm, yeah, for sure. So and and we touched a little bit on this in, in the last question, but, um, you know, kind of going big picture, what do you think can be done on both a public policy and a private sector levels to um, address the disparity in pay in particular and opportunities in general for working moms? Yeah. So, I mean, from the private or public sector, I, I, I firmly believe that 
having some deeper conversations about the value of caregiving will help to solve the, the pay and equity issues. Because if we really put a value on that, it would be it would be more obvious, I think, for people to understand why why you shouldn't have to take a pay cut to come back to work. Because mm-hmm. in fact, you you developed even more skills. Um, I think from a policy standpoint, I mean, I I think it would be amazing if there was more equitable access to childcare. Period. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I know a lot of a lot of people feel like, hey, if my employer offered childcare, this is something that would make it easier. Versus, you know, I think people don't think a lot about the logistics and commute time that Mm -hmm. happens, you know, you might end up with an hour just to get someone to a facility and then, you know, you're tacking on two hours of, you know, part of your day. So thinking about more equitable access to high quality childcare is is something that I think both sides of that equation should be thinking about. Um, And then really, you know, looking at how we help people shift mindset and how we help people really reframe some of the biases that are out there. Um, I think there's a lot that can be done to go beyond training and one and done. Here's some information on what it means to be inclusive, or here's some information on what it means to, um, you know, support women in your workforce and really think about how can we help coach and and build, um, build up competencies over time where people really build habit and muscle around inclusive behaviors and not just giving it lip service. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point to end on is, is thinking that it's a, it's an ongoing process. And, you know, as we're talking about, um, gender equality, and as we're talking about DEI at work and all of these issues, it's, you know, the kind of constant refrain is it's not a training session. And then like, well, check that off the list. We got Mm -hmm. it done. You know, it's an ongoing questioning of yourself and your practices, you know, and as you brought up the, like when you said a meeting time, like who is this inclusive for, who does this work for when you're judging promotions? Like what are the actual factors that you're judging? You know, when you're looking at what your, your policies are, how your approach to things, even like your questioning and hiring the, the phrases and words you use, just everything is, you know, questioning it rather than just falling back on what's comfortable. Absolutely. Well, Claudia, thank you so much for joining me. This was such a great conversation. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity and it was great to connect with you. And that's all for this episode. If you're a new listener, be sure to subscribe to The New Way We Work wherever you listen. I also really encourage you to go back and listen to our past episodes. This season so far, we've covered code switching, the pay gap, and more. If you like this episode, leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. The New Way We Work is produced by Joshua Christensen.